Let's pray again. God, thank you for this morning. Uh, it is all about you. And we can make it all about us, but we find that that falls way short of what your glory demands. And so we thank you this morning that it is all about you and that we worship you, uh, we praise you because you are worthy. Uh, you open the scroll. We know that you win in the end and we know that we are part of that. Um, because we are in you, we are found in you. So help us this morning as we study your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as I mentioned earlier, I love uh, baptism Sundays. Isn't it neat to watch uh, believers as they publicly profess their faith and then uh, undergo the very ordinance that Jesus commanded. He said baptizing, right? So today is Baptism Sunday. And so what I thought we would do since we finished Luke 5 last Sunday, instead of starting into Luke 6 today and then uh, me being gone for a while, I thought it would be good to take one Sunday and talk specifically about baptism and church membership. The two kind of go hand in hand um, and, and spend some time there. Our elders talk about baptism and, and church membership frequently. It, it's often a conversation of ours, but it's not something that we talk about very often from the pulpit. And so we thought it would be good uh, to uh, to speak on this. If you go through the baptism and membership class at Bethel, and a number of you have now, uh, you know that in that class we give a lot of information about what baptism is, what uh, church membership looks like, what the biblical support for those things, so on and so forth. But it would be good if we do that from the pulpit occasionally. And so um, that's what we're going to do this morning. And I think any time that you talk about uh, baptism and you talk about church membership, it really needs to start with an understanding of Christ's love for the church. It has to start there. Christ's love for the church. Because you and I live in North America. Specifically, we live in the United States. And we are immersed in a culture that idolizes self-autonomy. It's all about you. You just be you. Nobody can tell you what to do. You live to your potential. Nothing can stop you. Live your dreams. We hear that all the time in our culture. It's a it's symbolic of self-autonomy. You take that idolization of self-autonomy and you combine that with an unregenerate human heart that is naturally averse to authority and what you have is a setup that looks at any institution of authority, and especially the church, with at minimum suspicion and outright hatred at worst. Nobody wants to be told what to do. Nobody wants to live under the authority of someone else. And in fact, we're, we're taught to question authority, to not trust authority. Okay, so you have self-autonomy, you have this aversion to authority, and then on top of all of that, we live in an age of consumerism where you just get whatever you want. And so if you happen to venture into the sphere of the church and you don't like it, then what do you do? You just leave and go somewhere else. Don't like the music? 
go somewhere else. The church isn't hip for you, go somewhere else. Uh, you don't like the preaching style? Watch a live stream from somewhere else, right? Are you expected to actually attend your church and you don't want to? Then go somewhere else where that is not the expectation, right? We, we, we have all of these options. And because there is a church on every corner of our city and in the United States that caters to every whim of preference, you will find something out there somewhere that fits what you like. And if you don't, then go start one on your own, right? That's just the age we live in. It's just the reality of what we face. And so I think when you start talking about the church, you have to begin by grounding it in Christ's love for it. I think probably one of the first verses that comes to mind when I think about Christ's love for the church is in Ephesians 5.25, and it goes like this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Isn't it interesting that right there in the middle of Paul's exhortations to husbands, he brings in the example of Christ and he says something that's absolutely remarkable. He says, Christ loved what? The church. Christ loved the church. The organization, the institution of his own creation. In fact, way back in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus looked at Peter and he said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is the creator, the inventor, the establisher of the church. And he promises to build it. And he promises that the church will go forth with the power of the gospel in such a way that the gates of hell won't prevail. Gates are meant to keep people out, right? If you have a gate on your property, you don't want anybody coming in there. Uh, The gates of hell cannot stand against the power of the gospel. The church goes into the domain of darkness, rescues people from the clutches of the devil, and brings them back out into the light, right? In order to be able to do that, it only comes because Christ died and rose again for the church. He gives the church this ability to do those things as a sign of his love and devotion to the church. He gave himself up for her. He loved the church. Therefore, I believe that we should love the church too. If we don't love the things that Jesus loves then there is no way that we can say that we love Jesus. To claim to love Jesus, but fail to love that which he loves, only expresses a disingenuous faith. You can't have it both ways. Either you love Jesus and the things that he loves, in this case the church, or the Jesus that you claim to love is a Jesus of your own making. Jesus loved the church. He died for the church. 
The book of Acts describes the expansion of the church. The epistles were written to churches. And in the very last book of your Bible, in the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks directly to individual churches with specific accolades and specific warnings. You cannot get around even a cursory reading of the New Testament without a general appreciation for the preeminence of the church in God's redemptive story. Christ loves the church. So, let's talk about what is it then? What is this thing called the church? Who can be part of it? What's expected if you're part of the church? Well, I think it's first important to make a distinction between what we call big C, capital C church, and little C church. When we talk about big C church, capital C church, what we're talking about there is the universal church. That is the invisible body of believers of Jesus Christ. It is the universal church because it is just that. It's universal. It spans both time and space. The universal church includes every believer from the earliest pages of Scripture, and it expands from there forward, and it it encompasses the entire globe. The universal church. We can't see into the divine courtroom of God, so we don't know precisely who's part of that universal church. Only God ultimately knows that. So we call big C church. Then you have little C church. That is the visible, local body of believers that gather together for mutual discipleship and accountability. We can see who's part of the local church. Now, I would quickly point out that just because you're part of the local church does not mean you're part of the universal church. Only God knows that. But we know who's part of the local church because we can see you, right? You're you're there. You're attached, okay? So you have big C church and you have little C church. Let's start with the, the bigger one. Who can be part of the big C, the universal church? Well, that is any man, woman, boy, or girl who professes faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who's repented of their sin, and they put all of their trust in the work of Jesus for their salvation. And the first act of obedience by a new believer is what we actually saw this morning. It's water baptism. Just before, just before Jesus left earth, he gave this commission in Matthew 28. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, here it goes, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The command in that verse is to make disciples. That's the singular command. Once we've made disciples, we are called then to baptize them and to teach them. So baptism is this 
practice in the Bible where an individual, as you saw this morning, makes a public declaration of his or her allegiance to King Jesus, and then that's followed by the use of water. This is what we call immersion. This is where a person goes into the water and comes back up. That's a picture, actually, of Romans 6, verse 4. That's where it comes from, where Paul says, we are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. That's the going down. In order that, as Christ was raised from the dead, the person's coming back up, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So immersion is that picture of going down with Jesus, baptized into his death, being raised into new life. Other churches uh, baptized by pouring water over the head of a disciple. That practice actually is a picture of Acts 2, where the Holy Spirit was being poured out onto the lives of believers on the day of Pentecost. With, with either mode, the point of this person is that they are publicly identifying their allegiance to a new king, King Jesus. Do you have to be baptized to be a believer? Not necessarily. Uh, the thief on the cross who met Jesus in paradise that day was not baptized, uh, but certainly was a believer. But I would quickly say this. The normal ongoing first expression of obedience in the life of a new believer should be water baptism. That's what Jesus said. Throughout the book of Acts, you see this expressly exampled, uh, people expressing their faith, and then they were baptized by water. Peter famously said in Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized. Notice the order there. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if you are here this morning, and you are like a couple of them that gave their testimony, you are a believer, but you've not yet been baptized, let me encourage you, take that step. Get baptized. That's the first part of your walk with Jesus Christ. We, te- we have a baptism class here a couple times a year. If you're not sure how that looks, come talk to me. Or come talk to Pastor Ryan. We can point you in the right direction and we can get, get you there. So belief in Jesus Christ is entrance into big C, capital C, universal church. You are now part of a new kingdom. You have a new allegiance to a new king. And your acceptance into that kingdom now will shape everything else you do. If you are a student, if you are a boss, if you are an employee, if you are a parent, if you are a spouse, everything that you do in life now will be shaped by and defined by this new kingdom reality. I am under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's big church, universal church. All of those things then find expression, this living it out, find expression in the context of little C church, the local church. So immediately upon entry into the universal church, new believers then attach themselves to a local church. That began happening on the day of Pentecost. It happened in Jerusalem. 
And from there, it just spread across the Middle East. Eventually, as persecution came on the believers, they scattered, they began establishing churches. As Paul and Barnabas and other missionaries would travel, they would, they would find where these believers were, they would establish a local church. I do not believe that Peter or James or Paul would have ever conceived of a situation where a person was part of a universal church and not connected to a local church. I think that would have been unthinkable to them. It just would not have made any sense to them because it is in the context of the local church where that training and teaching portion of Jesus Christ's commission so clearly happened. So the question becomes, can membership in a local church be supported by Scripture? Because, you know, there are are churches out there uh, that don't have church membership. And so can you point to a verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt have church membership roles? (laughs) Well, you can't, admittedly, you cannot point to a single verse to find that. But I think the principle is all over the New Testament. Let me give you some examples of that. When the church was first born in Acts chapter 2 and Peter gave his famous speech, Luke records this in Acts chapter 2. He says, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Somebody's counting. Somebody's keeping track. Somebody's saying this person just came into the lordship of Jesus Christ. They're part of this Jerusalem church that's beginning here. Later, Luke records in Acts 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. Again, somebody's keeping a record. Somebody's noticing this. They, they knew how many people had joined their ranks. And speaking of joining, even non-believers were a little hesitant. Watch this in Luke, in, in Acts chapter 5. It said, none of the rest, these are the unbelievers, none of the rest dared join them. But the people held them, that is the believers in high esteem. Do you catch that? Non-believers held believers in high esteem, but they did not join them. There was a joining that was happening by the believers, and non-believers were pulling away from that. Probably some of the greatest evidence of church membership and church membership roles comes when you begin thinking about church leadership. Here's how Peter exhorted the elders in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not domineering over those in your charge. Well, how are the elders supposed to know who were those in their charge? What came by church membership, those believers that were joining and attaching themselves to the church where the elders were shepherding. Perhaps an even more compelling argument comes in Hebrews chapter 13. The writer of Hebrews tells his reader, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
Did you catch that in there? Church leaders have to give an account for those under their leadership. One day, I and the elders of Bethel will stand before God as you, one by one, come in. I don't know exactly how it's going to look, but one by one, you're going to come in, and I am going to have to give an account for how I shepherded your soul. That's a tall charge. I kind of want to know, who am I giving an account for? Because that's pretty important if I have to give an account for you. I want to know who you is. Does that mean any visitor who shows up at our church on spring break? Am I going to have to give an account for that person? Or is it the person who shows up at our church only at Christmas and Easter? Do I give an account for that person? Is it the guy or gal who sits in our pew once a month, maybe once a quarter, but then just disappears as quickly as church is over? Is that the person who I have to give an account for? Or is it the one who formally joins the church? Because notice something else about this verse. Look at it again. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Christians don't really join churches. They submit to them. And that word submit scares a lot of people. And understandably so. Because there are so many cases you hear about of leadership abuse and that happens in the church and it's probably another whole sermon for for another day uh, nonetheless when when the writer of hebrews talks about joining a church he uses the word submission submission and god reveals that his authority is given to be rightly exercised for the good of those under that authority. If you think about God, God is the author of creation and he used his authority to create and to bless us. In a similar way, God gives authorized human stewards a bit of authority to be used for the good and prosperity of other people. And so when we talk about local church membership, what we're really talking about is this formal relationship between a church and a Christian that's characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of that Christian's discipleship And that Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. And when those two things are working in harmony, godly church leaders who are uh, maturing and developing uh, church members and church members who are lovingly submitting and expressing their gifts inside the church, there is this beautiful growth that you see happen in the church, this flourishing That's how God intended for that authority and submission to work. Christians are growing in their maturity of faith and Christian leaders are coming alongside and helping in that development. It's stunningly beautiful. So much so that Jesus said, I'm willing to give my life to make sure that that happens for the church. 
And when that collective church comes together and it stands on issues of right and wrong, of morality and of Christian virtue, there is a special and unique power there. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says that the church assembles and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Later in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, when you come together as a church, and he goes on to talk about the unique power, the church is a formidable force. As individual believers, we have a personal and saving relationship with Jesus. But when we bind together with other believers, there is a prophetic and supernatural power because the collective is stronger. We are meant to walk together, not in a singular fashion. So you have the big church and you have these local bodies of believers scattered all over the world to make up the individual local churches. So if you go to join a church, what's expected of you? Well, I would argue there are at least four things that are commanded of you uh, from Scripture. We hold to all of these at Bethel, and these are expected of all of our members. Number one, regular attendance. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, the writer of Hebrews says explicitly, uh, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice that little phrase in there, not neglecting to meet together. It is expected that church members make a regular practice of attending church services. And I don't think that that means asking the question, well, What's the bare minimum number of times I can attend and, and, and keep my name on the roll? I think if that's the question. I think you've missed the point. I think rather it's an attitude like this. I need the encouragement of other believers. I need to be stirred up to love and good works. And I need to stir up other people. And I can only do that when I'm with them, and even more so as the day of the Lord draws closer. So an active member is generally there when church services are being held. And if you rarely attend church services because your hobby doesn't allow you, or your sports team doesn't allow you, or your job doesn't allow you, let me just be blunt with you, which of those is going to take priority? Will obedience to the word of God take priority or those other things? Because if those other things are preventing you from gathering with other believers, then my opinion is you need to ditch them. Some people say, well, I can't, it's, it's my job. And I understand that there are certain circumstances where it's, it's unavoidable. But if you are voluntarily not gathering with the people because you want to work, my question to you is this. Do you think God is capable of providing you with another job if you are attempting to be faithful in obedience to him by gathering with his people? 
I think he will be. Try him and see. I think he'll give you a job. I think he can be found trustworthy with that part of your life. Hebrews calls us to gather together. And I'm preaching to the choir. You're here, right? Regular attendance. Number two, a member should be a regular giver. Now, that may sound self-serving since I'm supported by the church, but it does come out of the pages of Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, it says this, Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Do you get all that? And young person, let me encourage you, if you have a summer job, this applies to you too. Right? So notice what he says. Giving should be systematic on the first day of the week. Put something aside. And it should be proportionate. He said, as you may prosper. Some of you prosper a lot. Some of you prosper a little. You give accordingly. But you give. And you give sacrificially. Paul said of the church in Macedonia in 2 Corinthians 8, listen to what he said about this church. He said, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. They sacrificed for the work of the church. So church members regularly attend, they regularly give, and thirdly, they give themselves to regular prayer. In James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So church members attend, they give, they pray, and number four, they serve. They serve. We call this fellowship. And fellowship is different than socializing. Socializing is when you get with your buddies at church and you talk about the weather, you talk about your work, you talk about your sports, whatever. That's, that's called socializing. Fellowship, serving, means taking the spiritual gifts that God has given to you and you use those to build up others, to edify other people in the church. And I think one of the oft-overlooked parts of spiritual gifts is that spiritual gifts are not given primarily for your own benefit. They're given to you so that you can edify and bless other people in the church. That's why we need one another. That's why we don't all have the same gifts. Over and over and over, Paul says this. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? For the common good. That's why you've been given it. 1 Corinthians 14. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesied is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets. And listen to this. So that the church may be built up. Why do you have a spiritual gift? So that you can build up the church. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 14. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up 
the church. And finally, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, he says, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Listen, you can't build others up if you're not with them. The church comes together, they give together, they pray together, and they serve together. That's what church members do. My prayer is this. My prayer is that when you think about the church, universal church or your local church, that you love it as much as Christ loved it. That you love this institution for which Christ was willing to give up his life. What are you willing to give up to see the church continue and prosper? Will you join the church for the sake of your King Jesus? Will you join the very institution that he created and that he grows? I can promise you it's worth it. The church is the greatest institution on the planet. And one day, the big C church, the universal church, will be gathered in the throne room of God where we'll bow down and we will say, is he worthy? He is. He is. It was worth it all. Will you stand with me? Let's pray. God, my prayer is that each of us here this morning would not only know you in a personal, salvific way, have you as our king, this allegiance to you, but that we would also be committed to love that which you loved, to love the church for which you gave your life, to submit to the church, to come and join arms with other believers and serve together and love one another and pray for one another, teach one another, encourage one another, admonish one another. All of the the one another's that we see happen in Scripture that happen inside the church. And I pray that even non-believers, while might not be willing to join, certainly look at the church and hold it in high esteem because they say there's power in that collective group of people who love Jesus Christ and have them as king. Father, I pray that we would appropriate that that power and authority um, in a right way. And we wouldn't abuse that. We wouldn't use it to beat people down. They would come alongside and that we would help people as they're growing in their faith and that together the church would prosper. I pray that every person in here would be eager to see someone else profess allegiance to Jesus Christ and join the church. And I pray that we would take that great commission to go out and make disciples and that we would also take it seriously to baptize them and to teach them and all of that happening in the context of a local church. God, I love you. And I pray for this church now, even as I step away for a little while, I know that you are more than capable of caring for this church. I could step away and never come back and this church would be just fine because you are the king, you're the head. And so I just pray over these next few months that they would continue to grow and abound in joy for you, abound in grace and mercy toward others. 
And when I come back this fall, I would find that they are even more mature, more glorious, more like Jesus Christ, even than when I left. May you bless them richly. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.